We come this evening to the Psalm 89. This is one of the longer Psalms, and it is impossible in the time at our disposal to go into the Psalm in any real detail, but simply to highlight some of the things that the psalmist says regarding the faithfulness of God. This is at the very heart of this psalm. It is rejoicing, a psalm of rejoicing in the faithfulness of God. You will see how that this is referred to different occasions down through the psalm. In verse 1, the psalmist says, I will sing of the mercies of the Lord forever. With my mouth will I make known thy faithfulness to all generations. The faithfulness of God is of such importance to the psalmist. It gives his soul such a thrill to think upon it that he says he will make it known to all generations. Uh, The psalmist, of course, would make it known in the fact that he writes about it and the faithfulness of God is recorded and therefore it is passed from one generation to another. But you will see that he actually says it's with his mouth he will do it. And therefore, we have to understand that as far as he is concerned, every generation, the generation of which, to which he belonged, the generation of his elders, the generation of the young, the generation of the children, every generation, He says, I will make known thy faithfulness to every generation. It's a subject that should indeed occupy the minds of young and of old, the faithfulness of God. Again in verse 2, he says, I have said, mercy shall be built forever. Thy faithfulness shalt thou establish in the very heavens. Again in verse 5, And the heavens shall praise thy wonders, O Lord, thy faithfulness also in the congregation of saints. Then in verse 8, O Lord, God of hosts, who is a strong Lord like unto thee, or to thy faithfulness round about thee. The concentration is upon God's faithfulness, thy faithfulness that is recognized by the psalmist. But then, when we come over later in the psalm, for example, to verse 24, what do we find now? It isn't the psalmist speaking in appreciation of God's faithfulness, but it is God himself speaking of his faithfulness. But my faithfulness And my mercy shall be with him, that is David, and in my name shall his horn be exalted. And then we come down to the very heart of it in verse 33. Nevertheless, my loving kindness will I not utterly take from him, nor suffer my faithfulness to fail. 
My faithfulness is unfailing. It is consistent. My faithfulness cannot possibly fail. Why, my covenant will I not break, nor alter the thing that has gone out of my lips. The faithfulness of God is exhibited in his covenant. My covenant will I not break, nor alter the thing that has gone out of my lips. That's why David himself was able to speak of the covenant that God had established with him. And he said it was ordered in all things unsure. Every fine detail was all ordered by God to perfection. The things that had gone out, he would not alter the thing that has gone out of my lips. He would not alter one particle of that agreement, that covenant agreement. It was settled, it was established, it would never be edited, it would never be changed, it would never be altered. I will not break it, I will keep it because I am faithful. Now, this faithfulness of which the psalmist speaks is the faithfulness upon which every child of God and every servant of God is absolutely dependent. When the apostle Paul is writing to encourage young Timothy in his ministry, Paul had the experience that Timothy didn't have. But there was one way of encouraging him, and in Second Timothy chapter Two, this is what Paul has to say to Timothy, verse 13. If we believe not, yet he abideth faithful. He cannot deny himself. God cannot deny his own character. He cannot deny who he is. He is faithful. Nothing he does, nothing in providence, nothing in history, nothing in the works of God will ever deny the faithfulness of God. As the psalmist says, it's established even in the very heavens. Now, Paul isn't just telling Timothy to encourage him uh, of the faithfulness of God. He can trust God. Whatever his lot in providence, whatever befalls him in his ministry, he can rely on this. God will always be absolutely faithful. And when Paul is writing, for example, to the Corinthians, and he had many problems with the Corinthians, they were very unfaithful at times, very inconsistent. He had constant need to be rebuking them for the abuses among them and so on. But when he writes to them in the first epistle, uh, he speaks of the faithfulness of God there, verse 9 of chapter 1. God is faithful. That's a statement of fact in itself. 
God is faithful. If he's not faithful, he's not God. God is faithful by whom ye were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. God is faithful in effectual calling. He is faithful in effectual calling. This is what... uh, Paul knows this is what gives him encouragement amidst all that discouraged him at times. God is faithful by whom ye were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. The God who called you effectually into fellowship with himself, reconciled you to himself, that God is faithful. And because he's faithful, then the apostle is able to write to the same Corinthians in the chapter 10. And in verse 13, he writes this, There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able but will with the temptation also make a way to escape that ye may be able to bear it. There's the faithfulness of God, not only in effectual calling of his people unto himself, but he is faithful in sustaining them and he is faithful in providing grace for them amidst their temptations. There is no temptation Uh, Paul writes, that hath taken you, uh, but such as is common to man. It's the common lot of men to be tempted and tried. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able. God knows, he remembers we are dust, he knoweth our frame, he remembers that we are dust, every one of his children, And he knows what every one of his children are able to stand or withstand. And this is what Paul says. He won't allow you to be tempted or tried above what he will give you the grace to sustain you in it. He will with the temptation. Isn't that something? He will with the temptation alongside of the temptation, accompanying the temptation, accompanying the trials and the temptations, he will with the temptation also make a way of escape that ye may be what? Able to bear it. That ye may be able to bear it. Some Uh, Believers have strange ideas about God's working in providence. And they think that it's a strange thing if God should allow them and their providences trials and temptations. And they think, well, there's something seriously wrong, and it's usually with God. God will with the temptation because he's faithful. He isn't going to enable his people
people. He's not going to prevent temptations or trials. They're not going to be able to avoid them because God, in his wisdom, may consider it good for them. He may consider it edifying. This is how it was with Paul himself and his own experience, the thorn in the flesh, the buffeting of Satan, and he prayed so earnestly three times that God would take it away, and he really wanted God to do that. He was in deadly earnest, but God said no. And why did Paul say that God wouldn't remove the thorn in the flesh? Why wouldn't prevent the buffetings of Satan, lest he be lifted up in pride. And that's, you see, what God does. He knows exactly what we need, when we need it, how we need it. And this is what he says. God may not prevent the temptation, but he will provide alongside of it a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. And that's, you see, what God sometimes does, as we heard in the prayer earlier, cast thy burden upon the Lord, he shall sustain thee. And sometimes, you see, that's what God does to see what we'll do with it. He'll send the burdens to see what we'll do with them. Will we try to carry them ourselves in our own strength? Or will we? take them and cast them upon the Lord. Or as we were saying sometime earlier this year, in the Psalm 37, roll it all unto the Lord. Commit thy way unto the Lord. Roll it all unto God. Now here is the Apostle Paul speaking of the faithfulness of God in all aspects of the believer's life, initially faithfully calling them to himself and then sustaining them uh, through their pilgrimage so that they will not perish and they will not uh, fall away. Now, when we get back to the psalm, the psalmist here is speaking of God's Faithfulness, in particular as covenant faithfulness to David. And he says that this faithfulness is his covenant faithfulness. It's his covenant faithfulness. This is not just something that God is. He is faithful. Even if he didn't enter into covenant, he remains faithful because he is God. He cannot be anything else. He cannot deny himself. But the wonder is that he wants us to know how faithful he is. He wants us to appreciate his faithfulness. He wants us to experience his faithfulness. And so he speaks of his covenant faithfulness. And this covenant faithfulness is established in the very heavens. That's the marvel of it. Verse 2 of this Psalm 89. For I have said, mercy shall be built up forever. Thy faithfulness shalt thou establish 
or fix or settle in the very heavens. I have made a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn unto David, my servant, and so on. What a marvel it is that the faithfulness of God is established in the very heavens. That takes us out of the earthly scene, that elevates our minds and takes us into the very presence of the triune God. And the faithfulness of God is fixed in his very own person. The faithfulness of God is fixed in that union of persons, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. And that faithfulness, that covenant faithfulness, is established in heaven. It's a settled thing in heaven itself. And you have the faithfulness of each of the persons of the Godhead. The faithfulness of the Father in his relationship to the Son. The faithfulness of the Son in his relationship to the Father. The faithfulness of the third person, the Holy Spirit, in relation to the Father and the Son. The eternal Son, we know how faithful he was and is. He was obedient even unto death. And he came to do his father's will. In the volume of the book it is written of me, I delight to do thy will, O my God. And how faithful he was in the fulfillment of his father's will until he could say from the cross, It is finished. And there you have the evidence that he has been faithful in the mission that he has been sent to accomplish, even in the Garden of Gethsemane. When his faithfulness is tested and he holds that terrible cup and his body is sweating as it were great drops of blood falling down to the ground. His faithfulness is so evident in that he says, Not my will. Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thy will. There's his faithfulness. And he agonizes as he bears the full strength and weight of the wrath of God until he is completed what the Father has sent him to do. And the Holy Spirit is faithful in upholding him until that work is finished. He offered himself up through the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God rested upon him and supported him all the way through until he had accomplished faithfully the Father's will. And the Holy Spirit is faithful in his applying the work that Christ accomplished. His work is so necessary. Christ died, yes. He bore the sin of his people. He made an atonement for their sin. But that doesn't change the human heart. 
That doesn't alter the human will. That doesn't suffice uh, to make men turn to Christ or appreciate his love or appreciate what he's done. But the Holy Spirit is faithful. He's the faithful paraclete who comes alongside of his people. But he's also faithful in effectual calling. He's faithful in his striving with men who by nature have no desire for God. How faithful is the work of the Spirit of God when we find ourselves sitting in a prayer meeting when we, as we heard in the prayer, are no different from anyone else, no more desire for God than the heathen. Why are we here? Because of the faithfulness of the Holy Spirit working regeneration, working and quickening and applying the work that was done by Christ. But the Father's faithfulness He made his covenant promises to his son, ask of me the heathen, and I will give them. And he does. He is faithful in his promises. And the eternal son, when he's finished his work, he ascends into heaven uh, to his glory that he had with the Father from the beginning. And the persons of the Godhead They establish in themselves, but in their activities and in their relationship one to another, the faithfulness of God is established. But it is also particularly established when, as we were saying in Sabbath evening past, it is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again and is seated at the Father's right hand, living to intercede for his people. He establishes the faithfulness not only of himself, but his reception by the Father establishes the faithfulness of all the persons of the Godhead. As we said The death of Christ was the atonement offered. The resurrection of Christ is the atonement accepted. He rose again, proof that he has indeed made an atonement. He rose again as the evidence That atonement has been accepted. And he's able to come right into the presence of his Father, fully accepted. He has proven his faithfulness, faithful to the Father, faithful to the Spirit, faithful to the covenant promises. But oh, how faithful he has been to his people. He has asked for them. The Father said, Ask of me the heathen, and I will give them for thine inheritance. And his blood is asking for them. And the Father gives them. 
And this is establishing the faithfulness of God in heaven when he ascended on high. His faithfulness is rewarded. He's received. He's exalted. He's exonerated. He's glorified. He's accepted. Heaven rejoices in the return of the one who was so humiliated and uh, humbled himself even unto death. But there is another way that God's faithfulness is established in the very heavens. And what a sight it has to be when we see the innumerable multitudes of all the redeemed out of every tribe and kindred and tongue and nation, all redeemed and all brought to glory. And it isn't because of their faithfulness. It isn't because of their consistency. It isn't because they deserve to be there. It's all because of his faithfulness. It's established in heaven and how it will be established in glory when all the redeemed will all be around the throne and they will all see then the one that John talked about and the one that he obviously by faith was looking to see. It doth not yet appear, he said, what we shall be. It's way out of sight yet. We haven't even the, the ability to comprehend it yet. But we know this, that when we shall see him, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. And what an evidence of the faithfulness of the Christ of God, the Redeemer. What a faithfulness on the part of the blessed Holy Spirit who wrought conviction of sin, who led and guided into the truth, who sanctified his people until they are brought with gladness great and mirth on every side into the palace of the king, and there they shall abide. What a wonderful subject the psalmist is dwelling upon, the faithfulness of God, established in heaven, but we're not in heaven yet, and the church is still battling the forces of darkness in this world. So look at what the psalmist says in verse 5. The heavens shall praise thy wonders, O Lord, thy faithfulness also in the congregation of the saints. Why will the congregation of the saints be praising God for his wonders and his faithfulness? Because they've experienced it. There's not one of us here this evening. However advanced we may imagine ourselves to be in a state of grace, not one of us could have made it, not one of us, without his faithfulness. 
How faithful he has been when we've been unfaithful. How faithful he has been and how true to his covenant promises. He could have forsaken us long, long ago. He could have abandoned us, but he didn't. Because he's faithful. And the heavens shall praise thy wonders, O Lord. The angels desire to look into these things. It is such a marvel to them. There was no savior for those rebellious, angelic beings who were cast out of heaven and out of the presence of God. And they marvel and they wonder. And they're actually asking eventually, who are these? And whence came they? Who are these? Where did they come from? Whence are they? They came from the dunghill. They came from the pit. They came from the highways and the byways. They were gathered in. These are they that have come out of great tribulation and have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. The heavens shall praise thy wonders, O Lord, thy faithfulness also in the congregation of thy saints. And then again, you have the psalmist speaking of God's faithfulness. In the verse 8, O Lord God of hosts, who is a strong Lord like unto thee, or to thy faithfulness, Round about thee, the faithfulness of God is exclusive because there's no other faithfulness can compare to it. Faithfulness is something we all admire, something we all appreciate. We like people to be faithful with us in our dealings with them. And yet who can comprehend the faithfulness of God because so much of it is out of sight. It's unseen. We are unaware so often of God's faithfulness and the execution of his decrees hidden from us and his ways of working in providence. There was Job mystified. Oh, that I knew where I might find him. He seems to be in such darkness, but God is his eye in Job, and God permits Satan to have the mastery over him to even such an extent that the only thing he's not permitted to do is take his life. Satan was allowed to bring him to the very verge of the grave itself. That was the length to which Satan was per, uh, was permitted to take him. And Job cries out in his distress, Oh, that I knew where I could find God in this darkness. Oh, that I knew how to get to God, that I could speak to him, that I could present my case to him. Uh, but then he discovers God really is faithful. And I'm not seeing all that's behind the scene that 
the human eye can see. God is working out his plan to confound Satan because Satan was saying Job's only a hypocrite. He's only serving God because of God's goodness to him materially and so on. And Satan is saying, you you afflict Job and you'll see the change. And his poor wife was saying, curse God and die Job. My, my. But God was faithful and Job discovered that. And again and again, you see the faithfulness of God when we look back sometimes. It's only then we discover God was faithful. God was true. God was all that he claims to be. And so often as it was with the Savior when he was washing the disciples' feet, you remember that Simon Peter objected. He didn't want the Lord to wash his feet. And what did the Lord say to him? What I do now, thou knowest not. You don't understand it, Peter. You're ignorant of it, but thou shalt know hereafter. And what mysteries will be unfolded and revealed to us in glory when, by God's grace, we eventually are among the spirits of just men made perfect, all made perfect in holiness then we shall understand so many things that we can't possibly understand now. But we shall then be able to say like the psalmist, God has been faithful. There's nothing more certain. He has been faithful. He promised and he kept his promise. And that's what you see You have God, in your own experience, doing, and you see in your providences when you look back, if God hadn't been faithful, where would I have ended up? If God had not been faithful to my soul, where would I be? Whenever Simon Peter writes his epistles, And he is fulfilling the commission that the Savior gave him. Feed my flock, feed my lambs. Feed them with understanding. Feed them with knowledge. Feed them out of your experience, Peter. Peter has learned something. And he has learned and he gives the advice. Be diligent. Be sober, be diligent. Why? Because your adversary, the devil, goeth about as a roaring lion whom he may devour. And how do you know that, Peter? I learned it through bitter experience when the Savior warned me. And he said, Satan hath desired to have you that he might sift you as wheat. Peter didn't believe a word of it. He thought he was Better than he was, but what did the Savior say? I have prayed for thee that thy faith fail not. And when thou art converted, 
strengthen the brethren. The faithfulness of the blessed Redeemer. The faithfulness that here the psalmist is able to speak prophetically of as well as experientially. And look at how the psalm ends very briefly. Uh, There's a plea at the end of the psalm and the basis of God's faithfulness. This question in verse 46, How long, Lord, will thou hide thyself forever? Shall thy wrath burn like a flame? Remember how short a time uh, my time is, and so on. And the psalmist is pleading on the basis of the faithfulness of God. How long are we to experience this desolation, the house of David, the state it's in, the afflictions that God in his faithfulness has sent to the descendants of David and the royal house of David. But the faithfulness of God is testified during the ministry of the Savior. What a marvel it is when you hear a blind man crying out, Jesus, thou son of David, have mercy on me, thou son of David. There's the faithfulness of God expressed. And there you have it testified to. When the house of David is fallen, it seems there's nothing left. Here you have the testimony to the faithfulness of God. Jesus, thou son of David, have mercy on me. And uh, the psalm finishes, and we must, with these wonderful words in verse 52, Blessed be the Lord forevermore. Amen and amen. As you've heard me say before in the Jewish Tanakh, the Jewish scriptures, the book of, the, what we have is the book of Psalms, It's five books in the Hebrew Tanakh uh, to correspond with the five books of the Pentateuch or the five books of Moses. And this is the conclusion of the third of those books. And they all end like the previous two end like this as well. Blessed be the Lord forevermore. And a double amen. One isn't sufficient. It's so marvelous. It's so wonderful. The faithfulness of God. Blessed be the Lord forevermore for his faithfulness. And he has been faithful to each of us here this evening. And we can't doubt it. We dare not doubt it. And we must surely add our amen to God's faithfulness, and especially in that faithfulness through his beloved Son to each of his people, as he is the friend that sticketh closer than any brother. And we each one may come up out of the wilderness leaning upon him because he's faithful.
He blessed these remarks.